Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeart Radio app. Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode contains graphic depictions of violence that listeners may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. January 31st, 2008, nearly 2,400 days after Sneha disappeared, her mom, Ansu, gets an email. She opens it, reads it. Her stomach starts to hurt. Her daughter is a 9-11 hero, finally. In a four-to-one decision, the New York State Supreme Court's appellate division rules that Sneha died at the World Trade Center. The court overturns an earlier decision by Judge Renee Roth, who said the theory that Sneha died at the Trade Center was, quote, rank speculation with absolutely no foundation in the record. This court disagrees. Quote, only the rankest speculation leads to any conclusion other than 9-11. So this is how it ends, in court at least, Dueling judges, a battle of the speculations, rank speculation that Sneha died at the Trade Center versus rankist speculation that any other explanation makes sense. Maybe this seems like semantics, but really it's the heart of this show, the heart of this case. 
Because in the absence of evidence, every single explanation, including 9-11, requires speculation. No speculation, no closure, no answers at all. In a dissenting opinion, Justice Bernard J. Malone wrote, quote, Since it is not known where the decedent spent the night of September 10th, it requires speculation to say that her route home took her across or dangerously near the World Trade Center grounds, or that, when the attacks began, she was even in the vicinity of the World Trade Center. And, It is equally probable, in light of evidence concerning her professional and personal problems, that the decedent died on or about September 11, 2001, by some other unfortunate fate. From iHeartRadio, this is Missing on 9-11, the story of one woman who vanished on the eve of history and my quest to find her. I'm your host, John Walzak. I understand that 9-11 makes intuitive sense. Occam's razor, right? But take emotion out of this case. Take away the desire to manufacture a hero. Does 9-11 really make sense? I'd say no. Or, at the very least, it's not an instant irrefutable answer. Look at the facts. Fact. Sneha's DNA was never recovered. Fact. 99% of civilians at the Trade Center below the impact zones escaped. 99%. Fact. Debris killed very few people before the towers fell. Fact. There were hundreds of cops, firefighters, and paramedics on site, quickly. Within minutes, Sneha wasn't needed. Even if she wanted to help, thousands of people with minor injuries flowed out of the towers into nearby triage areas where she could have volunteered, where she likely would have been directed by firefighters and paramedics. Fact. No eyewitnesses saw a petite, beautiful woman in a brown dress and sandals running into the towers. Fact, no photographs or videos show Sneha on 9-11 at or near the Trade Center. So let's dig deeper, piece by piece. First, DNA. There are 2,753 Trade Center victims. 60% have been identified, mostly by DNA but also via dental x-rays, fingerprints, photos, personal effects, tattoos, etc. For 20 years, the New York City Office of Chief Medical Examiner, or OCME, has led a Herculean effort to identify victims. That effort continues today. Earlier this year, I sat down in Tribeca with Mark Desire, the OCME's Assistant Director of Forensic Biology. On that frigid day, January 15, 2021, nearly 4,000 Americans died of COVID a greater death toll than 9-11. We sat with masks on, windows open, cold air flowing in as dark fell, an interview about one mass casualty event during another. On 9-11, Mark got to the Trade Center right after the planes hit. We pulled right on the Vesey. Oh, there's an open spot. We pulled on the Vesey, which is right in the shadow of the North Tower where debris were falling. We got out of the truck. It wasn't more than probably five seconds. A victim had fell right in front of us. You know, I'm not going to say jumper. I don't know if they jumped, but they fell right in front of us, and it was 
is this part of our job with one of the dead? Do we tag it? We collect a sample. We were sort of, we still had to find our chief. Our chief was down there. But we got out of that. The fire department made sure by screaming at us to get the hell out of that, that circle around the tower because that's where all you were, people were being killed. Debris and people falling out of the upper floors were killing those on the, uh, on the street. So we made our way away from that. And I remember there was this old fire chief there. He looked like Sam Elliott. So I had the big mustache and like the, the leather. And he was just there at the top. And I'm watching people hitting the concrete. And he's like, they're burning to death up there. He goes, you, you burn to death or you, you jump out and you get at least 10 more seconds of living. I'm like, man, then I knew. I'm like, this is one of those days that is going to change your life and career and everything. Mark found his boss, Dr. Charles Hirsch, at the corner of Liberty and West. So his has his back to the South Tower, and I'm watching people drop and hit, and I'm hearing him go through glass and hitting, it sounds like sent landed on a vehicle, and, and there are two people holding hands, and there's then you look at the ground, and there's just debris, and I'm like, wow, this is, this is, and he had said, yeah, there's people up to two blocks away. I took about one step away, and the South Tower cracked right there within stone's throw of where we were standing. South Tower cracked, and you just saw that top of the building and the steel and the fire just right over top of us. And I'm like, I'm dead. This is how I'm going to die. Mark ran across West. You really don't see it in, the, in that big mushroom, but there are bullets coming out of that. And they were, they're hitting. And I've been shot with BB guns before. I'm like, ooh, that's, that's going in. You can feel them hit your head. So I, I put my arms up and I was still trying to run. And it was almost like a warm like draft and wham, that debris as it came down. You don't realize it comes down, so if you're running, kind of like hits across the street. I get hit right in the ass, right in the ass by, I could tell it was a piece of rebar and uh, from the uh, x-ray <laughs> the next day, I got hit, but that saved, that saved my life. That pushed me the rest of the way into the building. I didn't make the door, the door is right here, but I went to the window and my arms were already up from the stinging, so my elbows and my head also broke the glass. I wasn't that far in though. My bottom, my legs were still ha- hanging out. And as the debris hit the building and fell, it fell across my last side, shattered, shattered my foot. I didn't make it all the way in. I crawled in. It was the darkest, quietest time I've ever experienced. All that dust made it pitch black. It softened, there was no sound. And for a second, I'm like, I'm, this must be me, I'm dead, right? This is like being dead, completely dark and quiet. I didn't feel any pain or anything. I didn't even know I was even injured. Then I, for the first time that morning, I panicked because I tried to do this. I tried to go, take a big, at that point, I was still holding my breath. I was running, hold my breath, hit, smack glass, holding my breath, dark, crawl in. And I go to take a big breath after holding your breath for a minute or so. Oh, and I, there was no air. There was nothing. Absolutely like like trying to breathe underwater. And then I started panicking, gasping, right? I said, hold. So maybe if I get into the building, I just ran into the darkness, bumping into stuff. As the dust started settling, pulled my shirt up. I said, oh, I could breathe a little more. Just calm down, right? I'm not going to die. Despite his shattered foot, Mark had a ton of work to do. He and the rest of the OCME team recovered and identified thousands of bodies and body parts. Without being too graphic, are you talking about bones, teeth, pieces of flesh? What are you t- when you say human remains beyond yeah. bone? Every possible thing you can think of. Yeah, there were um, limbs, there were organs, hair, 
a lot of fire, so tissue, blood, hair is not going to survive the fire. You're only going to have remains and teeth. Teeth are the hardest part of your body. They'll survive uh, just about anything. Um, I've had cremated remains where there were still teeth that we've been able to generate DNA profiles from. So bone can survive, and, and even though the outside of the bone may be charred and burned, but the inside might be protected. So that's where we go, where the marrow is to uh, generate a DNA profile. We've gotten plenty of, of DNA profiles, especially in 2001, from, from blood, from, from muscle, you know, from organs. Yep. Given the brutality of 9-11, what Mark and his team accomplished is astounding. What are things that destroy DNA? Heat and fire, water, sunlight, mold, bacteria, nasty chemicals like jet fuel, diesel fuel. Everything that destroys DNA was present at Ground Zero. So this is the toughest forensic investigation, the toughest body ID. I've, I've had scientists from all over the world, some that have done like um, some projects you've probably heard about, the Iceman that they found frozen in the bog or some ancient um, Neanderthal remains from thousands of years ago, tens of thousands. That's some pretty tough material. I've, I've brought them in and say, hey, you've been successful with Neanderthal bones and gotten DNA. 2,000-year-old mummies, we want to learn from you. And, and they look at our samples, and, they try, and they're like, this is worse. The World Trade Center is 1,000 times harder than, than any. <laughs> like, wow. Mark's team also sifted through remains from ancient cemeteries below the Trade Center site and thousands of animal bones from destroyed restaurants and incinerated office fridges. Recovering DNA was only half the battle, though. Mark also needed reference samples to match DNA to victims. So World Trade Center, we have 17,000 reference samples, 17,000 toothbrushes and razors and brushes and samples from moms and dads and sons and daughters and brothers and sisters, 17,000 samples, which is or called the anti-mortem. You know, this is stuff from when you were alive. I have a toothbrush from when Mark was alive. Let's take DNA from that toothbrush and compare it to these remains because they might be Mark. Without those reference samples, without that anti-mortem, you would not identify anybody. The post-mortem side is what you take after you die. So you need, it's equally important. So we have all this information from all these thousands of toothbrushes and combs and anything family members brought to us, some very interesting things. Including a victim's prayer card, the blood of a victim who cut himself while working on an aquarium right before 9-11, and a 33-year-old umbilical cord. But most samples came from family members, including Sneha's parents. Ultimately, Mark's team identified 1,642 out of 2,753 victims, 60%, but not Sneha. Now let's look at where victims died and why it matters. In 2005, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, or NIST, released a detailed report on the Trade Center disaster. Jason Averill, a fire protection engineer, led the team that examined occupant behavior, evacuation, and emergency communications. So the goals of my project were to understand how, where, and why the people uh, died or successfully evacuated. Were there factors relating to the design of the building, the design of the egress system, that contributed to success or failure? Jason has not only scientific expertise, but also personal experience with an air disaster. In 1994, his dad, Daniel, died when U.S. Air Flight 427 crashed near Pittsburgh. Jason was in college at the time. 
That experience guided him during the Trade Center investigation, especially as he interviewed traumatized survivors and victim family members. Jason's work and that of hundreds of other NIST experts led to more than 40 building code changes. Things like requiring photoluminescent markings and stairs in case the lights go out to save lives during future disasters. Jason's team found that on 9-11, 99% of civilians below the impact zones where the planes hit the towers successfully evacuated, 99%. To be clear, the study came out while Sneha's case was winding its way through court before she was an official victim. It did not include Sneha, and some of the data is estimated and imprecise, but the overall picture is clear. 1,974 civilians died at or above the points of impact. 148 died below. 24, some were unspecified. 147 on the planes. 18 were bystanders or nearby building occupants killed by debris and or jet fuel. And for 17, there was no information. 421 first responders also died, 403 of whom worked for the NYPD, FDNY, or Port Authority, plus two federal employees, seven hospital employees and or paramedics, and nine volunteers. The first theory about Sneha is that she ran into the towers to help and died. But only 2% of first responder fatalities were volunteers. 2%. The second is that Sneha was in the towers for some other reason, maybe shopping. But only 1% of civilians below the impact zones died. 1%. The third is that Sneha was killed by debris or jet fuel while walking home. But only 18 victims were bystanders or occupants of nearby buildings. 0.007% of nearly 3,000 victims. 2%. 1%, 0.007%. So is it possible that Sneha died while volunteering, shopping, or walking home? Yes, but it's extremely and demonstrably unlikely. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with a king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. 
thought they were going to kill me. So I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. Is he breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody, welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation... I don't feel like I have to get married yeah. at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous <laughs> of your generation yeah. that didn't have to deal with Instagram and that. Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. We create magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We've looked at DNA and where victims side. What about just basic logic? Theory number one, Sneha ran into the towers and died. On the surface, it clicks. But dig in, and it doesn't make sense. The first firefighters reached the Trade Center only four minutes after the first plane. Hundreds of other firefighters, cops, and paramedics followed quickly. A civilian doctor without supplies would not have been needed after, say, five to ten minutes. And even if Sneha was near the towers and wanted to help, she likely would have been directed to a nearby triage area or hospital out of the danger zone. Or she could have helped any of the thousands of people with minor injuries like lacerations, the walking wounded. Most victims had either minor injuries or they died. Few fell in between. The number of victims in the lobbies alive but unable to walk, for example, was minimal. Here's the other thing. 73 minutes passed between the first plane strike and the collapse of the first tower. It's unlikely that Sneha lingered in the towers or would have been allowed to linger for up to 73 minutes as 99% of civilians escaped. Theory number two. 
Sneha was shopping in the mall underneath the towers or on her way to Windows on the World on top of the North Tower when the attacks began. This doesn't make sense either. Ron told a reporter that he and Sneha never went to the Trade Center, that she had no reason to be there, and even if she was shopping in the mall, she would have had ample time to evacuate. In terms of Windows on the World, Sneha's family posited that she wanted to scope it out in advance of a friend's wedding reception. But the wedding wasn't set to take place until April 2002, seven months later. And if walking home on 9-11, after a night out, why would Sneha lug two heavy shopping bags to the top of a skyscraper without first stopping at her apartment, only 900 feet away? Finally, that presumes she walked home and didn't take a cab. Theory number three. While walking home, Sneha was hit by debris or jet fuel. But out of nearly 3,000 victims, only 18 were bystanders or occupants of nearby buildings. Is it possible Sneha was the 19th? Yes. But if debris hit her, it's unlikely she would have lay in the street until the towers fell. Most victims hit by debris or jet fuel were pulled off the street and taken to hospitals. Is it possible that Sneha was crossing between the towers through the plaza, not on the street, at the exact moment the first plane hit? Again, yes, technically, but is it likely? Theory number four. On September 10th, Sneha attended a party at a hotel next to the Trade Center, presumably the Marriott Between the Towers, hosted by the city's South Asian community. She stayed the night, even though she lived only 900 feet away, and died the next day. This theory was put forth by Sneha's older brother, Ashwin. I have no idea where he got it. It doesn't make sense. And I found no evidence of any South Asian party on 9-10, a Monday night, anywhere in the city, let alone near or between the towers. Nonetheless, for the sake of due diligence, I reached out to a woman named Doreen Dunn, who worked at the Marriott World Trade Center from 1997 until 9-11. I was an event manager, so I dealt with meetings, some weddings, you know, conferences, that kind of thing. And I, what I did was planned all the details of the event. Doreen got to work between 7.30 and 8 a.m. on 9-11. An hour later... We heard a, a huge noise, like really loud noise. Our lights in the office flashed for a second, but came back on. And I ran, we had a window. I was on the third floor. I had a window. So I looked out on the street and there, at the same time, there was like a 10 car accident. Like they, everyone must have heard it and people weren't paying attention. And all of these cars just hit each other. And I remember there was a, there was construction and the, the construction person, he just started picking up his cones like really quick. So I thought he did something because I had no idea, you know, that some of that would ever happen. And then we could see, you know, things falling from the sky and we just knew it was something bad. I asked Doreen what she remembers about September 10th. Did the hotel host a party for the city's South Asian community? I don't remember really anything going on in the hotel. Like Mondays were usually, because we were a business hotel, everything would start like on a Tuesday. People, you know, because most of the time people didn't want to travel on their personal time. So like a lot of the groups would arrive on Monday and then their event would start on Tuesday. So Mondays were kind of usually a pretty mellow day in my department, but I don't remember that. So we've looked at DNA, where victims died, and logic. Next, 
Eyewitnesses, photos, and videos. The first is easy. In 20 years, no one has come forward to say they remember a petite, beautiful Indian American woman in a brown dress and sandals running into the towers. I searched oral histories and spoke to authors, but found nothing. The second is more complicated. It's been said that 9-11 was the most photographed event in history, but the vast majority of photos and videos were captured at a distance. Street-level footage taken near the towers is rare. Images captured inside the towers are extremely rare. I looked at everything. I crawled into deep corners of the internet and poured through out-of-print books. To find any footage of Sneha would, more or less, be to solve this case. It would prove she was exposed to a specific peril, 9-11. I sifted through so many images, looking for the woman in the brown dress, I got motion sick. And maybe, staring at thousands of 9-11 photos while locked away in an apartment during a pandemic death winter is not, shall we say, great for one's mental health. Anyway, I looked and looked, first through public images and videos, and then I reached out to 20 photographers, amateur and professional, to see if they would grant me access to their full archives. Six responded. Two were very helpful. Todd Mazel, a former photographer for the New York Daily News, and Masij Swalinski, an amateur photographer. Masij has never been interviewed by an American journalist until now. In 2001, he lived in New Jersey. Every day, he took a ferry to Manhattan, where he worked as an IT specialist for Goldman Sachs. When he got off the ferry, he walked by the Twin Towers on his way to work. On 9-11, he carried an early model digital camera, a Canon PowerShot Pro 90 IS to be exact, 2.6 megapixels. It was a pretty day, and he figured, hey, I'll snap some photos. At 8.46 a.m., Masij was standing directly across the street from the Trade Center when he heard a loud boom. I had no idea where is this coming from, what is happening. It was so sudden. And then I started to see at Westside Highway, which actually was, to my surprise, almost empty. I don't know how it happened, but there was no traffic anymore, except one car. It was a passenger car who had tires punctured. So the driver drove very slowly with that um, noise of flat tires, but was trying evidently to, uh, to, to drive away from that area. So the car must have been hit by debris from the collision from that accident. And debris was everywhere, was a lot, it was covering West Side Highway and then all other streets around. My feeling was, whoa, what a tragic accident happened. Probably a small a plane hit the tower um, by an accident. I've never thought at that point that it, it is a terrorist attack. So I noticed a fire from the North Tower, and I was on the south side. So I went closer to, to the South Tower, and from different angles, I started to take pictures of the towers and the smoke from the North Tower. And my next step was to take pictures on the ground. There were not many people, very few people around. I noticed one of the cars on fire. Somehow he, the tire 
was burning, a lot of debris around. I was really running very quickly around. You feel in the air something unusual happening. For the moment, I went even to this to the plaza that used to be between two towers. This is the area where a sphere uh, sculpture uh, was back then. And it was also absolutely empty. From the sky, was there were falling like hundreds of different documents, paper. It was like confetti on on Broadway, on in the Canyon of Heroes. So it, was, it was falling from the sky, from that damaged tower. I didn't see any people escaping from the building. Really, there was nobody outside. I I went back the place I used to walk before, so I went south next to the entrance to the tower. So I was between the South Tower and Deutsche Bank building. And then I stopped after thinking of a group of pictures and I started to look around what is on the ground. And then from that debris, I realized that it is not just the debris from the building. I realized there are parts of the plane, wires, electronics, like part of the computers. I also noticed belongings of the passengers. I noticed shoes. And the most touching was to see human flesh, the parts of it, and the fresh blood everywhere. I was really understanding that a big tragedy happened, but this could not last long for me to look at this and really take the whole picture of this tragedy because at that moment I heard a jet flying very close. I raised my head and I saw the plane right above my head and in a fraction of a second, when I was looking at it, I saw that the plane disappeared inside the tower. So the whole big plane with the wing just got inside and disappeared. I was standing on the street. Like I mentioned before, it was before the tower and Deutsche Bank building. And I had no cover. Debris started to fall all around, noise of metal, um, with different sounds and I just was so scared so I thought no way to escape you know it's just just the instinct of the just direction I wanted to be as small as possible to avoid any hit from the above and when this happened I was really really scared and so in a few minutes I decided to go away from this area because it was too scary for me. At 8.47, only one minute after American 11 hit the North Tower, Masij took his first photo of the tower on fire. He stood at the intersection of Liberty and West, two blocks north of Sneha's building. In fact, he would have been very close to the mystery woman who exited the building at 8.43. At 8.50, Masij took his first street-level photo. Three men are visible, but they're blurry. 
He kept shooting as he crossed west to Liberty, just south of the South Tower. Crushed cars, fires, pedestrians in disbelief, debris everywhere. At 8.59, Masij took a photo in which about 20 people are visible. The closest is a black woman facing away from the camera. At 9.02, United 175 flew right over Masij into the South Tower. He pointed his camera up and snapped an image as debris rained down on him. He stuck around only a few more minutes, then walked to his office. Masij kindly provided me high-resolution copies of every photo he took on 9-11. So too did Todd Maisel, who worked for the New York Daily News for 19 years. On 9-11, Todd followed a police truck speeding down the West Side Highway toward the towers. At 9.02 a.m., he saw a fireball, the second plane. He parked at West and Chambers in the middle of the street, five blocks north of the Trade Center, grabbed his camera, and sprinted south. I started running down West, and I'm seeing people fleeing from the direction of the World Trade Center. And then I made a left onto Vesey. What drew you to Vesey? You said you had been drawn to Vesey. I, I, uh, I saw uh, plane parts. I didn't see much going on straight down on West. Uh, so uh, I, I didn't go that direction. I just, something drew my eye, and I said, I'm going that way. Todd ran around three sides of the Trade Center complex, a left on Vesey, a right on Church, a right on Liberty, north, east, and south of the towers. The entire time, he shot photos. So when you were circling the Trade Center complex, you didn't see anyone laying in the streets, anyone? No, 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 not at that point. But most of the people that had been uh, removed from the streets already. Along Church, it was absolutely dead quiet until I got to Liberty. When I got to Liberty, I got to the, the firehouse, 10 and 10, and there were people lying on the ground injured. Apparently, they had been uh, hurt on the ground. There was uh, fire on the ground, plane parts, pieces of building all over the place uh, on the, in the parking lot right across the street on Liberty and West Street, a lot. Uh, there was a big parking lot there. Some of the cars were burning. A few of the cars had pieces of metal that had fallen from the top of the building and, uh, and went right into the, into the cars. Then I saw body parts. There were body parts on the ground. Uh, the most famous one, of course, is the one I took of the hand. Todd stumbled upon a severed hand and shot an image of it. I've seen the photo before. But when I looked at it again, closely, I noticed something new, a small, strange rectangle next to the hand. At first I saw it and I'm like, what is that? It almost looked like a dog tag or something. I was like, there's no way that that's some kind of identification. And then I zoomed in and I'm like, does that say Hershey's? And it's just this one single rectangle part of a Hershey's chocolate bar. That's right, that's right. It gives it some, it gives it a different sense of humanity. Um, of normalcy that was going on prior to the whole horror. Todd shared his photos with me, hundreds of them, most of which have never been published. They tell a narrative of destruction, both grand and granular, graphic and compelling, a complete, uninterrupted, visceral story. Look up the burning towers. Look down, part of a plane fuselage. Look up again, a man falling to his death. Look down again, a severed hand. Todd captured history as it should be captured, in my opinion, in its entirety. You captured images of body parts, uh, the hand, the severed hand being the most well-known. Why did you choose to capture those images? They were important. They were important. The, 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 to minimize the terror and the horror of that day, 
would be an injustice to the public. That's it. That's it in a nutshell. To minimize the horror is is censorship. It's wrong. And the Daily News used that picture in the paper. And, and they caught a lot of flack from it. And so the editor, uh, Ed Kozner, took it out in a later edition. But it ran. It ran in the paper. I was shocked when I saw it that it ran in the paper. But I was proud. I was proud that the Daily News had the guts to do it. That the editors there said, this is a powerful picture. They understood it. Todd's photos are graphic and upsetting. By the time I viewed them, I had sifted through thousands of 9-11 images. I wasn't expecting to feel anything, but I felt sick. They made me nauseous. Other than the severed hand, the most disturbing images he captured were of the death of firefighter Danny Sir. You saw him hit and I saw him killed. He was the first one to die. Did you realize that he had been hit by a person? No. No. I found out later. Maybe two weeks later, I found out that he had actually gotten hit by a person. And because when what hit him broke apart, just a big splat. But to him, it was like a piece of concrete. They loaded him up on a gurney and they started carrying him away. I kind of lost it at that point because I. This guy was dead. I just knew it. Um, and I started crying a little bit. And another photographer was there. I don't know who he was to this day. Says to me, try to keep it together. Try to keep it together. And uh, so I started shooting again. I shot a couple of pictures of the Greek church with the, with the burning towers in the background. Then I looked up and buildings coming towards me. And just the sky opened up black pieces of debris for for one second you saw it and you said I, I said no pictures run 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 and all i had in my head was run 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 all the way into 90 west street i dived into the into the lobby of the building and i swear to god i was in midair when that building hit i hit the ground curled up and the building crashed into the uh, into 90 west and, and uh Debris came raining down, and uh, the, the ceiling collapsed. Uh, wall was collapsing. The whole lobby filled with dust. You couldn't see a thing. The lights went out. Darkness, darkness. I remember darkness and, and, and dust. And I just stayed down. I pulled out a bandana I had with me. I wrapped it around my face, and I said, "I got to get out of here. I'm going to die." I started crawling out backwards. After the South Tower fell, Todd and his colleague, David Hanshu, took refuge in a deli. David's legs were shattered. Todd shot photos of him on the floor, covered in dust. Then... You hear a roar coming, like a train coming towards us. 10.28 a.m., the North Tower falls. I just curled up next to a, a refrigerator in the deli, and boom! The debris was raining down uh, on the front of the building. The, the whole facade collapsed. Debris everywhere turned pitch black, pitch black dust. And I just waited. And you hear the, the firefighters and the cops. You don't know who it is, but uh, they were there crying and screaming, we're going to die, we're going to die. And then all of a sudden, the light came through the windows. And I said, ah, oh, we're going to live through this one. 
Only one professional photographer died on 9-11, Bill Biggert, who snapped his final frame a split second before the North Tower collapsed onto him. The lack of additional casualties speaks in part to how few photographers got so close to the towers. By this point, I know their names. I've searched their photos looking for Sneha, the woman in the brown dress. It might seem crazy, like a waste of time, but it's worked at least twice in other cases. In 2002, a man named Mike Rambusek found a photo of his son, Luke, hanging out of a broken window high in the North Tower only 15 minutes before it fell. And in 2010, a man named Judson Box found a photo of his son, Gary, a firefighter, running through a tunnel toward the towers. But to replicate that, to find Sneha manually, would take a miracle. So we decided to automate the process. We partnered with two companies, AIH Tech and Trueface, to use cutting-edge facial recognition software to scan 9-11 images for Sneha. Here's AIH Tech co-founder Ben Su. The AI computer vision definitely can help people that are uh, searching for their loved ones in hundreds, if not thousands, or hundred thousands of uh, images. To my knowledge, artificial intelligence has never been used for something like this, to search historical images for a missing person. First, we scraped all publicly available 9-11 footage that shows people in or near the towers. Then we contacted 20 photographers, including Masid Swalinski and Todd Mazel, to access unpublished images. We ended up with 100 gigabytes of footage, 1,373 photos, 797 videos. We also collected 53 photos of Sneha as reference images. One of the reasons we chose to work with both AIH Tech and Trueface is that they focus on ethical applications of facial recognition technology, including the minimization of gender and racial bias. Each company helped us in different ways. AIH Tech trained us to use their software directly, and Trueface ran a search for us. Here's Trueface CEO, Sean Moore. We are a computer vision company that is, is fundamentally trying to teach cameras to see like human beings. So to ingest the visual field and understand uh, what is familiar and what is not familiar. And if that is familiar, is it important to me? Can you kind of walk me through the software just for a layperson's like high level overview of how it works? Yeah, absolutely. So we take the, the person in consideration. So in this case, it was a female. We take the images that we have of her that we're looking to reference amongst a broader set of images. So think about it as her profile. We've got a profile of her that we enroll as, as person one. And then we look at the overall consideration. I think in this case, we, we found roughly 477,000 pictures of people or faces in those images and, and videos. 477,000 faces. That doesn't mean 477,000 people because undoubtedly many were duplicates of the same person, but still that's a ton of faces. And so we're looking then at, does this woman match any of those faces across the media files, the, the videos and the photos? And the way we do that is we zero in on every face in every frame. We extract what's called a, a biometric template, a facial recognition face template. Uh, so think about it like a, a fingerprint of your face. It's proprietary to you. You're the only one that has that. And then we look at a certain threshold. Does the individual we're looking for face prints match the face print of anyone in those 477,000 faces? And so, you know, effectively we're, we're programmatically trying to match. And what we did was we set a high threshold of, of what in our case is a similarity threshold of 0.6 and we got no matches. 
And so we continue to lower that threshold down until we start to see some matches, knowing that there, there could be false positives that will require human review. And so, you know, as we lower that threshold, we start to see more, more hits. Uh, and then we went manually through those hits and ultimately did not find the person in any of those images. In the 100 gigs of data we provided, 2,170 photos and videos captured in or near the towers on 9-11. Trueface detected 477,000 faces, which is impressive, but not Sneha's. So we turned to AIH Tech. Having direct access to their intuitive software allowed us to fiddle with things like the confidence threshold. Basically, how confident is the algorithm that two faces belong to the same person? AIH Tech recommended that we start with at least a 70% threshold, high enough to limit false matches, but low enough to grab frames of anyone who resembled Sneha so we could double check everything manually. Any match above 90%, we found her. Our assistant producer, Chris, first tested the AIH software at a very low threshold. It misidentified multiple items, like tires, as human faces. It even detected amorphous faces in the billowing smoke, which was eerie. So we stuck with the recommended minimum, 70%, technically 73%. To test the efficacy of the software, we ran the 2020 segment on Sneha. It worked, a ton of matches, anywhere from 84 to 95%. Then Chris ran all the 9-11 footage we collected. We got a few hits in the mid 70s, both photos and videos. The highest was 80.41%. A woman captured on video by Luigi Cataniga running as the South Tower fell. Definitely not Sneha, though. In the end, 100 gigs of footage, 2,170 photos and videos, two facial recognition programs using cutting-edge AI. No Sneha. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with a king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If if you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut. I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. 
Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite in powerful conversations. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. I want you all to join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. In every episode, we gather a seasoned elder. But even with a child, there's no such thing as the wrong thing if you love them. Myself, as the middle generation... I don't feel like I have to get married yeah. at this big age in life, but it is a desire I have and something that I've navigated in dating and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations. I'm very jealous <laughs> of your generation yeah. that didn't have to deal with Instagram and that. Tinder. This is Across Generations, where Black women's voices unite, and together, you know how we do, we create magic. We create magic. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So as we consider the likelihood that Sneha died on 9-11 at the Trade Center, this is what we're left with. She's among the 40% of victims whose remains have never been identified. Only 1% of civilians below the impact zones died. Only 2% of first responders who died were volunteers. Only 0.007% of victims were civilians killed by falling debris or jet fuel. A civilian doctor without supplies likely wasn't needed after the first five to 10 minutes when hundreds of firefighters, cops, and paramedics arrived. It's unlikely Sneha would have been allowed to linger for up to 73 minutes until the first tower collapsed. No eyewitnesses saw Sneha in or near the towers, and we can't find any photos or videos showing Sneha on 9-11. In an earlier episode, I said there are four possible logical explanations as to what could have happened to Sneha. Suicide, we ruled out. Foul play, either random or at the hands of someone Sneha knew, is unlikely. 9-11 seems less likely, and the idea that Sneha ran away is wild. So what then? There are endless other theories, many of which you've shared with us. Sneha overdosed, and whomever she was with panicked and hid her body. She stayed the night in the towers with someone. 
The person Sneha stayed with on 9-10 died on 9-11, and that's why they never came forward. There are so many theories, you'll drive yourself crazy, but most make little, if any, sense. None are more likely than either 9-11 or the idea that Sneha ran away. After a year obsessed with this case, to me, no theory makes complete sense, but those two make the most sense. So how do you prove either? First, 9-11. The most concrete way to solve this case would be to identify Sneha's DNA. And that is possible. The New York City OCME continues its vital work. It still has 7,204 unidentified remains. And in 2015, 17, 18, and 19, it made new identifications. Here's Mark Desire. We're working on right now, we, we spent some time with the military uh, down in Dover, Delaware. They've got an amazing technique that we're bringing on that I know is going to make even more IDs. And it's, it takes take some time to validate it to make sure it's right and it works properly because some of these remains are very small. We might have one shot. You've got a, a tiny little piece of bone about the size of a Tic Tac. I have one shot. We're going to pulverize that and try to take DNA out of it. If we fail, probably not going to be able to ever get a DNA profile from it. So it's very stressful when you're working with these samples. So it's this new technique or new technology that you're taking from the military in, in Delaware. Can you tell me a little bit about sure, that? Sure. Up until now, your, um, your, your forensic techniques, you look at, on the, on the DNA strand, you look at repeat units of DNA, little bits of DNA that are repeated over and over again. And this is a, a norm for, for all crime labs in New York City. One of the things we've been able to do is, is take things like bone and break them down and pulverize them even more. Very fine talc powder, more access to the cells. Bone by itself is the hardest material to work with. Blood and saliva and hair, that's easy. Bone is, is very tough, very tough to work with. So pulverizing it, taking the DNA out, chemicals, extraction, we've improved that process. Quantitation, how much DNA is present, improve that. Amplifying it, taking very small amounts and making more of it in the lab. A lot of these procedures are from medical research. Some of the top medical research labs, we've taken techniques from them. But now we've got this, this technique, this next generation sequencing, it's called, and it will look at every single base or every single chemical on the strand. Rather than looking at blocks of it like we do now, now we can look at just tiny little sections. And what this allows us to do is, th when I had said things like sunlight and fire destroy DNA, picture a DNA strand. We've all seen the DNA helix, very thin, very fragile. The sunlight will just break it up into pieces, water or insects or mold or bacteria. And if it's broken up too much, we're not able to count these repeats, but that next generation sequencing looks at such tiny, small pieces, you're still able to see that information. So very exciting, very nerdy stuff, but very exciting. There's also a very remote possibility that new remains could be recovered from Manhattan rooftops or sewers. After 9-11, authorities swore they examined everything, everywhere, multiple times. But in 2006, construction workers found bones on top of the damaged Deutsche Bank building. They were on a rooftop and it had um, rock ballast. Some roofs have uh, like stone on them. Right there, right? Do you have this out there? Have stone on them to protect from the element, whatever. And as they were taking it, the construction workers were like, that's not a stone. What is, and they immediately, we always had people on site and they called the medical examiner uh, an MLI over. And they were like, oh, human remains, halt. Halt the deconstruction. We brought our team in. 785 bones we found 
if, if you held your hands out, most of them would fit in there. They're very small pieces. For five years, they sat on this roof in the sun and the rain and the insects and the snow and uh, brought them to my team and said, hey, we just recovered these and we had just improved the DNA process again. I'm like, well, let's use the new procedure. These are really tough samples. Anytime remains sit out, bone sits out, it just bakes. The, the UV ray, and these were such small samples. I didn't have any hopes for any of them. There were a lot of them. And uh, my team went to work and they came back. They're like, boss, we've got like 80% of these. I'm like, what? The new technique? I'm like, that new technique is, is awesome. What are the chances that there are bone fragments on other roofs that have not been discovered 20 years later? After that, there was another round of searching. All of the remains at that point, I think after that, there were still some discovered, but these were uh, remains that were really deep in the ground or some sewer systems that kind of got caved in. So we continued to find some, some remains after that, but there wasn't, uh, there wasn't the, that, that many like we saw on that roof, those small fragments. So is there a chance? Sure. There, there could be a, a tiny fragment that somebody overlooked someplace. Possibly there's a lot of buildings down here that are kind of close together. You know, those areas were searched for something that probably hasn't been searched in a hundred years. You never know. It could be because there was such a, a, a large area that, was, that were covered with uh, remains. Um, I, I do also get asked about um, fresh kills. Fresh Kills is the former Staten Island landfill, where first responders sifted through 1.8 million tons of Trade Center debris. I get asked by, by victims' families, do I think, as a scientist, are there remains buried at Fresh Kills? And my answer is yes, absolutely. Back in 2001, 2002, we were, technology, we were looking for larger fragments. Could there be um, you know, something, a splinter of bone buried in the ground up there? Sure. And then the next question is, can you get DNA from it? That I don't know. That I don't know until you try. I've had so many samples brought before me. We're gonna, like, you're not getting anything from this. Looking at it, like, and sure enough, like, wow, it's amazing. Science is amazing. The two places where remains could still be located 20 years later are near Ground Zero or at Fresh Kills, where Trade Center debris is buried in Section 1-9, also known as the West Mound. It's a long shot, but it's not impossible. In 2013, for example, surveyors located a piece of a plane wing between two buildings near Ground Zero. And this wasn't some tiny piece, four feet wide, five feet long, 250 pounds. It sat there for 12 years. As for fresh kills, some victim family members believe that debris wasn't adequately sifted through or that some wasn't searched at all. There are human remains at fresh kills. No one disputes that. The question is whether any are identifiable Probably not, because presumably most are blended into what's called the fines, anything under the sides of a thumbnail. Here's Jay Aronson, the author of Who Owns the Dead? The Science and Politics of Death at Ground Zero. There was this material, this kind of very fine material that was a mix of the stuff that the towers were built of. You know, you think of drywall, cement, other materials that had sort of been pulverized. And there was certainly also some charred human remains in that material as well. Many of the people whose remains couldn't be found or parts of their bodies were, uh, were actually pulverized or sort of ground up in the heat and pressure of the explosion of the planes and then the collapse of the towers into themselves. 
and into the seven-story area under street level. And so there was really not much that could be done with that material. So it was, it was essentially left at fresh kills. Past human remains, there's also the chance that some of Sneha's personal belongings, pulled from Trade Center debris, could still be identified. Her family wonders specifically about jewelry. According to the New York Post, as of 2016, the NYPD still had 3,483 unidentified invoices in storage with one or more personal belongings, wallets, keys, clothing, etc. 374 included jewelry and or watches. For some reason, the NYPD has refused to release a catalog of the belongings, even to victim family members. I filed a records request seeking a list, index, and or images of the unidentified invoices that include jewelry and watches. But the NYPD denied my request, citing privacy concerns. I appealed the denial. The NYPD denied my appeal. At that point, well, here's part of an email I sent. Quote, The denial of my appeal cites privacy concerns and, specifically, the necessity of, quote, extensive redactions insofar as they contain personally identifying information. But the invoices I'm requesting information about, to my knowledge, concern objects for which owners were never identified. So unless the NYPD was actually able to ID these objects, but for some reason hasn't notified families, or could ID them, but hasn't, I don't understand how this applies here, and I don't believe it's a relevant reason, in this case, to deny my appeal. These objects are, by their nature, unidentified, and to state that there might be a necessity for, quote, extensive redactions insofar as they contain personally identifying information would indicate that the NYPD could ID the items, but hasn't for some reason. After that email, the NYPD stopped responding. In terms of whether or not Sneha is still alive, I had one final idea, to use AI to search for her in billions of photos taken after 9-11. I had serious ethical concerns about this. But like it or not, the technology is available to nearly anyone. First, I reached out to Clearview AI, a sketchy company whose database includes more than 3 billion images scraped from public sources, including social media. I didn't want to work with Clearview, but at that point, they were the only company I knew of with such an extensive database. And I figured, okay, well, if they solve this case, if they find Sneha, it's worth it. But they never responded. I figured, well, that's that. Then 12 days before the show premiered, I read a Washington Post article about a different company called PimEyes, which says it analyzed more than 900 million unique faces via billions of photos. The company claims that unlike Clearview, it doesn't scrape social media. Nonetheless, vigilante detectives used it to track down capital rioters. A 40-year-old German man uploaded an image taken 17 years ago and found a recent YouTube video showing him. And another man found a photo of himself from 25 years ago. PimEyes is a powerful tool, so I used it. First, I tested it on myself. I ran six photos taken between 2010 and 2021. PimEyes returned a few images. Only one surprised me, though. A photo from a concert I attended in New York in 2010. I also tested it by running an image of me in a mask taken during COVID. It misidentified me as Billie Eilish. So, not perfect. Then I turned to Sneha. I ran seven different images of her through PimEyes, old photos, and the age regression photo, showing what she would look like today. I got back anywhere from 39 to 161 results per image, but they were all old photos, nothing new, or not Sneha, though two made me pause and look very closely. One from a party in Greece in 2015, 
and one from a hospital in Italy in 2020. Again, definitely not Sneha, though. This case can be solved. I've heard from many of you. I'm vetting new information. I'll update you in the future. For now, though, since we can't find Sneha yet, I want to use this show to highlight something extremely important. Mark Desire of the OCME told me he has 40 DNA profiles from 9-11 remains that he can't match to anyone, meaning 40 victims could easily be identified if their families provided reference samples. There's also a chance that some of the 40 profiles belong to people never identified as 9-11 victims, homeless people, undocumented workers, etc. Mark encourages anyone who thinks their missing loved one might have died on 9-11 to contact the OCME. You can call them at 212-447-2030. That's 212-447-2030. I'd like to believe that Sneha used 9-11 as cover to escape and is alive somewhere. It's not necessarily what I believe, it's what I want to believe. That Sneha sent the mysterious postcard saying, everyone who knew me before 9-11 believes I'm dead. You'll recall that Sneha was born in Kerala, India. Well, a few weeks ago, a woman named Sajitha, who disappeared 11 years ago, was found alive in Kerala. Sneha's family wants the world to remember her as an undiluted hero. But after talking to people who knew Sneha, I'm not sure that's how she would want to be remembered. She was beautiful in her complexity, a fascinating character, ups and downs. In June 2001, 82 days before 9-11, she spent a night in jail. That night, she meditated with a woman in her cell. Other nights, including September 10th, she never came home. At least once, she returned covered in paint. Sneha volunteered in Harlem, helping single mothers. She liked to dance. In chaos, she found peace. In peace, chaos. On February 1st, when nearly 2,000 Americans died from COVID and 18 inches of snow fell on New York, I walked through Manhattan to Ground Zero. I'm standing right outside the 9-11 Memorial and Museum. Um, it's gated off, so you can't go in right now because we're in the middle of a blizzard. 100 feet away, on panel S66, the name of a phantom, the 2,751st 9-11 victim, Sneha Ann Phillip. Next week, we're going to release a special bonus episode. You won't want to miss it, so keep an eye on our feed. Homework. One, several listeners pointed out that Casey Neistat, before he was a famous YouTuber, lived on Rector Street near the Trade Center and shot video on 9-11 as the attacks unfolded. If someone knows Casey, or magically, Casey, you hear this, we'd love to see the full video. Two, if you hold sway in New York, Find out why the NYPD refuses to release a list, index, and or photos of unidentified 9-11 belongings, even to victim family members. Three, to the folks who declined to speak with me, I'd still love to speak with you. You can reach us by phone at 1-833-NEW-TIPS. That's 1-833-639-8477. Again, 1-833-639-8477. Or you can reach us via email at tips at iheartmedia.com. That's tips, T-I-P-S, at iheartmedia.com. Ben Bolin is our executive producer. Paul Deccan is our supervising producer. Chris Brown is our assistant producer. 
Seth Nicholas Johnson is our producer. Sam Teagarden is our research assistant. And I'm your host and executive producer, John Walzak. Cover art by Pam Peacock. Special thanks to Tamika Campbell at iHeart and to Christoph Zapri in New Orleans. Also, thank you to Mark Desire, Jason Averill, Doreen Dunn, Masid Smolinski, Todd Mazel, Ben Sue, Sean Moore, Jay Aronson, and Aesop Rock. Justice Burner, Jay Malone, voiced by Mike Smith of New Orleans. A shout out to Paul and Chris, our producers, who helped me report this story on the ground in New York during the pandemic, which was difficult. And a shout out to my alma mater, UNC Asheville. Facial recognition services provided by AIH Tech and Trueface. Original theme music by Aesop Rock. Check out Aesop's website at aesoprock.com. I'd like to dedicate this show to three women. My grandma, who brought me to the Trade Center when I was 11 and to Ground Zero when I was 13. My mom and Miss Helen. Miss Helen, we love you. You bring us joy every day, always. You can find me on Twitter at at John Walzak, J-O-N-W-A-L-C-Z-A-K. If you like this show, check out our first season, Missing in Alaska, about the 1972 disappearance of two congressmen. Missing on 9-11 is a co-production of iHeartRadio and Greenfort Media. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeart Radio app. Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities, right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.